On a hill above a small village near the city of Arras stood a wooden cross that remembered men from Yorkshire and Durham who had fallen there in April 1917. What became of that memorial? What stories can we find at Hennin Hill? I was over on the Somme battlefields the week before last leading a war poetry and war writers tour that took us from the Great War battlefields to those of the next Great War, to Normandy, to D-Day, to look at the stories there. But when I was on the Somme, it made me reflect, why do people almost prefer to come to a battlefield like the Somme to walk those chalk downlands of Picardy rather than go to Flanders? What is the draw from the Somme? And I think it's it's not just the history, it's the landscape. We often talk, we always talk about landscape on this podcast because it's so important. And in Flanders, there has been a lot of development and you have to search really for the kind of landscape that you can connect to in the way that you very easily connect with that landscape on the Somme. So the Somme gets a lot of visitors as a consequence of this. But as I was driving down from our hotel to get down to the Somme, we were staying up near Lille, we crossed over and visited part of the Arras battlefield. And it made me reflect that that terrain there, that landscape there, is so similar to the Somme. It too is a rolling chalk landscape. And Arras has so much to give. There is more of the modern world with factories and the motorway and an increasing number of wind farms in that area. But it is the same kind of landscape. So why then, given the attraction of the Somme, why is Arras not so much visited? And indeed beyond it, the battlefields, the wider battlefields of the Hindenburg Line and Combray, and indeed right up to those final months of the war, the battlefields of that period of the conflict. Well, just focusing on Arras, I mean, Arras really is is one of the easiest battlefields to get to. Like Ypres, it's very close to the Channel ports. You can be off the Eurotunnel down to Arras in around about an hour, coming straight down the motorway. And it is a battlefield where there is much evidence of the fighting and a large number of battlefields, smaller cemeteries, so graves not regrouped and brought into big burial grounds although that did happen in some places on the Arras battlefield but lots of small battlefield sites which again is one of the attractions if that's the right word of the Somme when you visit there you've got cemeteries like the Devonshire Cemetery or Hawthorne Number no. 1 or the Red Anne Ridge where you can connect with specific stories specific periods and often specific men who were buried in there And that's true of Arras as well. Well, I guess probably for Arras, one of the biggest problems over many, many years, unlike the Somme, which has resulted in almost a library's worth of books, that's not true of Arras. For many, many years, there was virtually nothing. An official history, German official histories, unit histories of both sides, all of that material not easy to get, no kind of single volume. But... That has improved in recent years, in the 1990s. It was begun with Jonathan Nichols' Cheerful Sacrifice, a work based on oral history interviews with veterans following in the wake of books by Martin Middlebrook and Lynn MacDonald. 
Jonathan put together a fantastic narrative of the Battle of Arras full of human stories. And it rates in my mind as still one of the classic accounts of not just the Battle of Arras, but the First World War. And since then, there's been quite a few books on Arras. In 2007, I published my own walking Arras covering that particular part of the battlefield. And within that wider Battleground Europe series, there's quite a few titles covering specific areas of the Arras battlefield. Recently, the late John Cooksey and Jerry Merlin worked together to produce some guides to the Arras battlefields. Jim Smithson has published a really good first volume covering the fighting in Arras and the beginning of an Arras battlefield guide as well. And Peter Barton and Jeremy Banning did one of the landscape-sized massive kind of volumes about Arras as well. So it's got better and better. So the material is, is there now, but still I don't think that that many people visit the Arras battlefields, which is a great shame because I think they have a lot to offer. Two defining years of the war, 1917-18, are represented on the ground when you visit that landscape where you walk the graves in the cemeteries and you understand the fighting that was there. There's a widespread of different nations involved in the fighting. Britain, of course, the wider Commonwealth, and around Arras itself, when you go back to the earlier periods of the war, when this was a French sector, you'll find men of many nations fighting alongside the French and their sacrifice represented with memorials, such as the Czechoslovakian and the Polish memorials north of Arras, commemorating men from those nations who fought within either the French Foreign Legion or as volunteers in the French army. And just from a British and Commonwealth perspective, Arras was one of the main sectors of the Western Front, and almost every soldier who was there from 1916 onwards would have served at Arras at some point, either going to another sector and holding a bit of ground there for a while, or taking part in the fighting around Arras in the battle there of April and May of 1917, or in the 1918 battles when the Germans pushed hard against Arras during the spring offensives, and then the Allied counter-offensives in August and September of that year. So there's a lot to see, a lot of material out there, and we'll put some links to some of the books onto the podcast website so you can find those. And Arras is a battlefield, I think, probably in this coming season that I'll return to, hopefully, a few times. And we're going to begin with that this week with a walk in the southern parts of the Arras battlefield sector up on to Henin Hill. Henin, or Enna to the French, is a small village to the south of the city of Arras. There's rising ground around it, the heights where the Germans had their defences and where the northern part of the Hindenburg line was constructed, that massive system of defences that stretched from near Arras via Combray all the way down to Soissons, well over 100 miles of interconnected defences built during the winter of 1916-17 and which the Germans withdrew into in the early part of 1917 in the withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line and then the British following up behind in the advance to the Hindenburg Line, a subject that we've covered in a separate Hindenburg Line podcast looking at how those defences came about. And this bit of ground where we are had been under German occupation in the early phase of the Great War. And when that withdrawal by the Germans to the Hindenburg Line began, there were outpost battles in villages like this as the British advanced into it and took the grounds that they would move forward to to dig new trenches to begin what would become the Battle of Arras, 
which took place on the 9th of April 1917 in this area. And this sector around the village of Henin was one occupied by the men of Lieutenant General Sir Thomas Doyley Snow's 7th Corps. Now, a corps, an army corps, we don't like to talk too often about these really big formations. 6th Corps did this, 11th Corps did that. It's kind of meaningless to most people, particularly when we're trying to construct a wider narrative and link it to the landscape but it's important information to know an army corps is a grouping of divisions and we've spoken about what is a division and how those formations are comprised in previous podcasts so an army corps is a grouping of these divisions under a senior officer in this case snow and i mention it because that is dan snow's great grandfather and i recorded a podcast with him recently talking about general snow which i don't think has been released as yet but this sector that he commanded at the beginning of Arras saw a number of divisions go into battle and he decided to look at the ground here and almost kind of build a timetable of the advance. One formation to the north does this, allowing the next formation to the south to do that, allowing the next formation below it to do that. And that was kind of logical looking at the fragmented nature of the ground here, the lack of definitive British positions in the way that they'd had perhaps on the Somme the previous year because of the advance to the Hindenburg Line had only taken place a few weeks before. The positions, the infrastructure had not really been built, but it would lead to quite a lot of problems in the advance. And the two key formations that fought in this area around the village of Henin was the 21st Division and the 30th Division. Now these were two new army formations that had fought on the Somme the previous year, both in the opening phase of the Somme battle, the 21st Division at Fricourt, for example, and the 30th Division at Montauban. And that division, the 30th, had two entire brigades of Powell's battalions, one from the King's Liverpool Regiment, the Liverpool Powell's, and one from the Manchester Regiment, the Manchester Powell's. And they had become veteran formations sustained heavy casualties during the Somme fighting and by now 1917 a lot of conscripts in the ranks and the identity of them being Manchester or Liverpool battalions had weakened, had decreased quite a lot but nevertheless some of the men who had fought on the Somme gained experience there had come back and were now non-commissioned officers or even had been commissioned from the ranks and were now serving as platoon or even company commanders in these units. The 21st had had a lot of casualties in that opening phase of the Battle of the Somme. We've spoken about the 9th Battalion, King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry, and when the barrage lifts, that was a unit within that division. It too had gained vital experience, as had the whole British Expeditionary Force, really, in those battles of 1916. And here they were holding this part of the flank with Henin separating those two formations. And their objective here was to advance on the main Hindenburg Line, breach it, and then push forward through its defences. And when it comes to the units that have been involved in the fighting in the 30th Division, the Manchester Powers Battalions have been involved in the capture of this ground, which we see in the graves in some of the cemeteries here, showing their dead from early April, prior to the main Battle of Arras. 2nd of April 1917 being a key date when a lot of these positions here were taken and the Germans withdrew back into the main defensive line. And the Liverpool Powers on the 9th of April, the beginning of the Battle of Arras attack, they were very heavily involved. So the Liverpool Powers went into action here with two of their battalions spearheading the attack. The British official history records the following account of this attack by these Powers battalions. 
The men went forward with confidence, but the attack was a failure. It was everywhere held up by terrific machine gun fire short of the Hindenburg wire, which, into the bargain, was now seen to be virtually untouched. The two battalions, after suffering over 200 casualties apiece, at first established themselves in shell holes, more or less on the line which marked the limit of their advance. So in this area, despite the lessons of the Somme, despite the increased bombardment that you see right across the Arras front, in this part of the heavily defended northern sector of the Hindenburg line, these battalions could not get into those positions. The wire was uncut and they were now lying shattered in shell holes in no man's land, waiting for other units to move forward and hopefully success on their flanks. Because of the timetable nature of Snow's plan here with units in one position doing something allowing the next unit to do it, when it came to the advance in the southern part of the battlefield here, south of Henin, the 21st Division attack didn't go in until the afternoon in broad daylight and very poor conditions. You've got to remember that the 9th of April 1917 temperatures were sub-zero. There was a snow blizzard to the north where the Canadians had gone in at Vimy. But that snow falling on the battlefields wasn't just in the Canadian sector. It was right across this whole part of the line. And when those battalions of the King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry, the 9th and the 10th battalions of the 64th Brigade of the 21st Division, and I'm mentioning this because the 64th Brigade is going to come up in this story, when they went in, again, the official history recalls they moved in section columns, maintaining this formation up to the enemy's wire a thousand yards away because there were known to be but a few gaps in it. The steadiness and resolution of their advance across this rising and open ground won the hearty admiration of their right-hand neighbours. Now, it might have won the admiration of their neighbours, but what it meant for those men of the King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry as they tried to cross that open ground, a thousand yards of ground, a massive advance compared to the kind of advances that they'd seen on the Somme the previous year. In those terrible conditions, in that snow, they were vulnerable. And again, what you see is battalions going to ground in shell holes, unable to get through. But in some areas, the wire was cut sufficiently enough to allow small groups of men to get into the Hindenburg line, and those battalions fought their way through. Some got towards the second line position, but small in number. So when the battalion commanders went forward, and again, this was different to the Somme, where the battalion commanders of both these units had led them over the top in the first wave, they now hung back, let the men go in, and then they would follow up. When they went forward, they realised that their positions were too exposed, and they called these men back back into the German front line. So at least there was a foothold there in the German forward position to allow that ground to be exploited, which it was over the course of the coming days. And in the very extreme right, the extreme southern sector, where this division, the 21st Division, went over the top on the 9th of April 1917, was a battalion of the East Yorkshire Regiment, the 1st East Yorks. They'd gone into battle with 521 officers and men. Now, the full strength of an infantry battalion is around about 1,100. When you start to look at the battles in the final years of the war, you never come across battalions at that kind of strength. And 500 or so officers and men is a much more typical composition of a battalion. Now, if you think that's 50% strength, that means that everything within that battalion, the companies and the platoons, are all under strength compared to what they would normally be 
if the unit was at full strength and that has obviously an effect and it also means that when you read the casualty list and you see that oh perhaps only 200 men became casualties here well in a battalion of a thousand men that's 20 percent casualties but in a battalion of 500 men that's a lot more and in the first east yorks they lost over 50 percent of the battalion that went into action that day so what you see in this ground around Henin come the end of the first day of the Battle of Arras is a confused position where men are scattered, some in shell holes, some in captured parts of the Hindenburg line, but heavy losses amongst all of the battalions. And many years ago when I was researching the 9th King's Own Yorkshire Infantry, I found a group photograph of their officers and on there is the Padre, who was the Padre from the formation of the battalion coming to France, the Reverend Bouchier, and he'd seen them through that terrible experience in the opening phase of the Somme. They'd remained on the Somme front throughout the summer on into the autumn when the, the rains came and turned the battlefield into a quagmire. So he'd had a tough war. And here on the 9th of April 1917, that was where this part of his war came to an end. He was wounded going out with the stretcher bearers to try and find some of the wounded who were lying out in the shell craters or out on the battlefield or in some cases hanging on that thick belts of wire that was in front of the main Hindenburg line, knowing that in these terrible conditions, wounded men could easily freeze to death. And his wounds were caused by shell fire while he was going out onto the battlefield like that, looking for his flock, the men of his flock who'd been wounded in that attack. So the story of these units and why I've mentioned brigades and divisions is important in this particular walk because it connects us not just to the events on the actual battlefield itself and what we find today on the landscape in the cemeteries, but also one of the things that I like about travelling around Britain is that you often come across things that then connect you back to the landscape of the Western Front. And a long time ago in the early 90s, I was up in the East Yorkshire town of Beverley, which is not far from Hull. It's got a beautiful minster. And in those days, it was also a place that had some really fantastic secondhand bookshops. I remember going into a bookshop almost opposite the minster, where in a dusty little corner was a little cardboard box full of the old Ordnance Survey maps. And when I rooted around it, in there I found a few trench maps and that was often the case with these places back in the day. But I went into the Minster not really knowing what to find. I mean today with the internet, in those days before the internet, you just often chanced across things because you couldn't look up a place to see what was there before you went, unlike you can do today. So when I walked in there I found the regimental chapel of the East Yorkshire Regiment. So these fantastic wooden panels commemorating the dead. I was doing quite a lot of research on the men from Hull then and their fighting on the Somme in 1916 and at Oppie Wood in 1917 during the Battle of Arras. And so it was interesting to see how the regiment was commemorated. And then I found a big cross, a big wooden cross, as part of the regimental memorial. And there were two plaques on the cross, one of which read to the honoured memory of the officers and men of the 64th Infantry Brigade who fell on April the 9th, 1917 in capturing the part of the Hindenburg line close to this place. The other plaque read, 
This cross was erected on Henin Hill near Arras, France, in April 1917. It was replaced in July 1931 by a permanent stone replica to perpetuate the memory of all ranks of the 64th Infantry Brigade who fell in the Great War, 1914-1918. to The brigade contained 1st East Yorks, 9th King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry, 10th King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry, and 15th Durham Light Infantry. So finding that in the early 90s, my immediate thought was, where is that permanent memorial? Now the date on the cross was 1931, so that was the time in which this original memorial that I was looking at in the Minster was replaced by a more permanent one. So where was it? So I contacted John Nichols, who wrote the book on the Battle of Arras, Cheerful Sacrifice. He'd not come across it. He put me on to Andre Cuello, who I'd met some years before, who was the head of Souvenir Francais in Arras, had this amazing private museum in his house, and he too was a little bit perplexed. He'd heard rumours of a memorial sitting up on the hill at Henin, close to where the fast railway line, the TGV line, and later the Eurostar line ran, and where the motorway to Paris ran. Now that was constructed in the 60s, kind of 70s period, so he wondered if perhaps the cross had just disappeared during that time. And it wasn't until I moved to France in the 90s and spent a lot of time on the Arras battlefield and began to walk it in preparation for writing my book, Walking Arras, that I chanced to cross it in a cemetery. So it is still there. More of that later in the podcast. But that's kind of where this story begins. Not on the actual battlefields, but in Beverly Minster. And since I've lived in Yorkshire, I've been back over to Beverly quite a few times. Sadly, not so many bookshops. I think only one now. But the cross is still there and the Memorial Chapel to the East Yorkshire Regiment is still there. And it's an amazing place to visit. And again, it's for me, it's always these criss-cross paths of the Great War. What we find here often then prompts us to make a journey over there on the landscape, the battlefields of the Western Front. And we're going to head to those battlefields of the village of Henin and Henin Hill as we head to Arras now. We've come to the area south of the village of Henin, and we're looking at the area close to the join of those two main divisions that attacked here on the 9th of April 1917, the 21st and the 30th Division. The powers of the King's Liverpool Regiment to the north, and in this ground to the south where we are, we're close to where those men of the 64th Brigade went into battle, the Coyleys, the East Yorkshire Regiment, and the Durham Line Infantry. And we can see already from here the nature of the ground here, similar to the Somme, vast open fields, the rolling chalk downlands, and the rising ground ahead of us, indicating that we're always looking at where the Hindenburg line was, because the Germans always sighted those positions on the best ground for defence. This was, for them, defensive ground. These kinds of defences were built to inflict as much loss on the enemy as possible. That was their purpose. And so already we can begin to understand the nature of the ground, and that's one of the most important things that you get by walking the battlefields today. And we're starting at one of the cemeteries that are in this part of the battlefield. When you look at the Commonwealth War Ghost Commission Cemetery Atlas, or you use Google Maps, and I'll put a Google Map onto the podcast website so you can follow the route, 
you can see that in this area typical of this Arras battlefield there are lots and lots of small battlefield cemeteries and that makes it an interesting landscape to walk with some interesting discoveries in those cemeteries. And we're starting at Henin Communal Cemetery and Extension. This burial ground was started by units of the 21st and 30th Divisions in April 1917, not just for the big attack at Arras, but in the capture of this ground a few days before. And the graves were added, the cemetery was constructed alongside an existing civilian burial ground, which had been the common practice in the early phase of the war and in periods where you see the army moving forward and it's yet to establish new cemeteries, proper separate military cemeteries, so it buries the dead on what is essentially already consecrated ground alongside a French civilian burial site. So that's very common in some of these areas around Arras and right across the Hindenburg Line area. This cemetery remained in use until November 1917 because the front lines were now beyond the village of Henin, up where the Hindenburg Line was, and although the Battle of Arras ended in May of 1917, there were small localised actions or men were killed just by holding the line in this sector, and they were brought back here for burial. Some graves were added in 1918 when the Germans attacked around Arras during the Spring Offensive. They pushed the British back. And then in August 1918, the Allies broke through again and British and Commonwealth troops advanced around Arras through the Hindenburg Line once more and then some graves were added during that period of the fighting. It's a fairly small cemetery with 190 British burials, 18 of whom are unidentified, so the vast majority are identified. You can see who these men were. There's one Canadian buried here and there are two special memorials to men who were known to be buried in the cemetery, but later shell fire, probably in 1918, destroyed the exact location of their graves. When you come up to the cemetery, it's got an unusual curved wall. It's the first thing that you see with a big wooden gateway, so not a wrought iron or a bronze gate. This is a wooden gate, and the curved wall incorporates the cross of sacrifice. And then you go into the cemetery and you begin to see how the graves reflect the nature of the fighting in this area. As I always say, these beacons on the landscape, which the silent cities, the cemeteries are, are not there by accident. They always tell a story, and every cemetery has one of those stories to tell. And here we see the men who were killed in the capture of this ground when the Germans withdrew to the Hindenburg Line and the British followed up behind. So from that classic kind of period, which is depicted in the film 1917, and there's quite a few men from the 2nd Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, which is part of the 30th Division, the Green Howards buried here, including a lot of men who had fought on the Somme. But one thing that always kind of catches my notice, because my dad was a gunner and I interviewed quite a lot of gunner veterans who were served in the Great War, particularly ones who were at Arras, is the number of artillery graves in here as well. And close to where the cemetery is located, particularly once the fighting moved onto the Hindenburg Line, so post the beginning of the Battle of Arras, the Royal Garrison Artillery moved their guns forward and they had siege batteries and heavy batteries firing from positions around this village. And Malcolm Vivian, one of the veterans that I mentioned quite a lot on this podcast, who was an officer in 96 Siege Battery Royal Garrison Artillery, he served up on that high ground beyond Henin towards Fontaine-le-Croisie, one of the next villages in German occupation. 
his siege guns were somewhere in this area in the latter part of the Battle of Arras in May through to the summer of 1917, and he would have gone through here on a regular basis up towards his forward observation positions post up in the front line area where he could spot for the guns. And he had 9.2-inch howitzers in his unit, which are pretty big guns that could fire quite a few miles over this landscape, and he was up there being the eyes of the guns, really. And when we look round the cemetery, there is indeed an officer just like him, Captain Arthur West of the 213th Siege Battery Royal Garrison Artillery, killed on the 28th of April 1917, aged 24, from Portsmouth. He was a forward observation officer up in the front line spotting for his guns. And I might never have known Malcolm. It was a dangerous job acting as a foo. You went up with your team of signalers and you spotted for the guns. You're often in positions of danger or you're in exposed positions where you could get the best view of what was going on to react to the needs of the infantry on the ground and the importance of destroying key German positions with your guns. And the Germans would launch fire onto where they thought men were overlooking their positions and the gunners could be killed and wounded. Malcolm himself was nearly killed in the sunken lane just beyond Henning Hill in 1917 so it was a dangerous job and, and there could be a Captain Malcolm Vivian buried in here and I would never have met him. When we leave the cemetery we take the road up into the village itself it's a minor road that comes into the village and when I first visited the cemeteries in this area when I was living on the Somme in the 90s tucked into one of the banks here was a massive war office water tank and this was a water supply tank that would be brought up and dug into a position by the Royal Engineers, creating a water supply point where infantry soldiers and others could come to to get fresh drinking water from and then transport that up to the forward positions. And this one was on the reverse slope of a bit of ground, so it was facing away from the Germans in a relative area of safety, as much as any part of any of these battlefields could be safe. And it was so embedded in that bank that it sat there for decades and decades and decades and disappeared sometime around about 2010. I searched for it uh, quite recently and couldn't find it. Whether it's been covered over or finally carted off for scrap, I don't know. But it was a nice kind of reminder of the British Army's occupation of this ground during the Great War. And then we go into the village itself. Kajul is the river, the stream that runs through this part of the battlefield that the village sits on. This had been in German occupation, knocked about by first French and then British artillery, and then devastated in the battles of 1917-18. So we are in that area of the red zone, the zone rouge. Nothing survived here, and villages like Enna, Henin were completely destroyed by the end of the Great War. So we're looking at a typical village that rose phoenix-like from the ashes, rebuilt with that typical dark red brick style, replicating the, the layout and the structure of the older village, but with newer buildings. And that's something we always reflect on, or certainly that I do, whenever I go through these villages. And occasionally, there was a bit of fighting in this area in 1940, you will see bullet nicks or shrapnel nicks on some of the brickworks in quite a few of these villages scattered around the city of Arras. It's again one of those places where the First World War meets the Second. 
and then cutting down some minor little tracks, minor roads, we come out beyond the village, out into the fields, and begin to get a sense of the open landscape that Arras is. We can see the line of the motorway in the distance and the railway lines. The TGV line from uh, Lille to Paris runs through here. As I mentioned before, the Eurostar comes down here and come out the Channel Tunnel, heading down towards Paris, comes down here. And then to our right is this kind of TGV switch line, using a First World War phrase, where the track comes in from the centre of Arras, where TGVs go off to wherever it is, Paris and probably beyond. So it's cut by bits of the modern world, and, and we can see the tops of the wind farms now in the distance as well. And particularly at night with the red lights flashing here, the, the landscape is lit up in a way that it wasn't before. The old world meeting the new world, that's progress, I guess. But there is still a sense of a landscape here and a sense of being in that landscape as you walk it, which I think is a really important way to connect to these places on the Western Front. And that brings us up to the, the second of the cemeteries that we're visiting on this walk, St. Martin Calvary Cemetery. This was again started by units of that 30th Division that included the Manchesters and the Liverpool Powers, but some of the other units as well, like the Wiltshire Regiment, very heavily involved, 2nd Battalion Wilts in this particular area of the battlefield, and you see their graves in quite a few of the cemeteries around Henin. So it was started in April 1917 with the beginning of the advance to the Hindenburg Line and the attack on the Hindenburg Line, and it was named after a cavalry a figure of Christ on the cross that stood somewhere on this part of the battlefield but that was destroyed by shellfire later in the fighting. And the cemetery remained in use until March 1918 when the Germans broke through here and captured this ground and then was reused again in those Hindenburg Line actions of August and September of 1918 when British and Canadian units further across came through this ground retaking this battlefield that had been lost in the spring and so heavily fought over in the previous year. Again another smallish burial ground, 228 British burials of which five are unidentified and there are three Germans buried here as well, possibly buried here during that March to summer 1918 period when the Germans were in occupation of this ground. But in plot one row A we've talked about the Liverpool Pals and those two battalions that spearheaded the assault here on the 9th of April 1917. That was the 17th and the 19th King's Liverpool Regiment and we find 25 men from those battalions buried in that row, very much marking their sacrifice on this ground at that early stage of the Battle of Arras. And then when we look at the cap badges of the other units that are in here, we see men from particular divisions that then went on to fight in this area. Although this ground was eventually captured in those early days of Arras in April 1917, the fighting continued on the other side of the hill, basically, towards places like Wancourt or Charisi or Fontaine. And there are men buried in here from some of the units that took part in those battles. The 18th Eastern Division, famous for its actions on the Somme, being on the Somme longer than anyone else from the summer of 1915, up until the Battle of Boom Ravine and the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line in 1917, and also men from the 50th Northumbrian Division, a, a territorial division, so a new army division and men from a territorial division, although, again, by this stage of the war, with all the heavy losses the previous year, the identity of these units had been broken down. So in 
Northumberland battalions of Downline Infantry or the Northumberland Fusiliers. You could have men from Sussex or Cornwall serving in those. And then if you looked at the Norfolks and the Suffolks or the Royal Sussex battalions that might be in the 18th Eastern Division, they could have Geordies, Scotsmen, Welshmen. The army was changing dramatically as a consequence of conscription and bringing in men to replace all those volunteers of the early phase of the war. And when I was researching some of the stories of the men buried in cemeteries like this, here I came across a little collection of graves from a particular unit of officers from a particular battalion that had been killed up on the high ground beyond where we are but brought back here for burial. And one of those was Captain Charles Sproxton, MC. He was the adjutant of the 1st 4th Yorkshire Regiment. He was killed on the 19th of July 1917, so after the main Battle of Arras, aged 26. And he was a, a lad from Hull, but well-educated. He'd gone to Cambridge University and been in the Cambridge Officer Training Corps, and he got a commission from that into the Greenhouse of Yorkshire Regiment and had served with them at the front for quite some time. Close by him is the medical officer of the same battalion. So here we have the grave of Captain John Bryden of the Royal Army Medical Corps. Now he was from Darlington, he was educated at Edinburgh University and he'd been at the front from 1915 where he'd lost an eye and was deemed unfit for active service but he petitioned and got permission to return to the Western Front and became the medical officer of the 1st 4th Greenhouse, the Yorkshire Regiment. He died on the 27th of June 1917, aged 33, when working in his regimental aid post close to the battlefields and close to a store of British gas cylinders, they got hit by shell fire and the chlorine gas within them came into the area where he was treating the wounded, gassing himself and some of the patients and to save a patient, he gave up his own gas mask, but as a consequence was badly gassed and died of his wounds. So a brave officer indeed. And his family visited the grave just after the end of the war and retrieved the original wooden cross from it, which went back home, and that still survives to this day, although a replica has been made to replace it as it had fallen into quite poor condition. Now, it's interesting that his grave was recovered and a cross was recovered because when I looked into their story, both Sproxton and Bryden, I discovered that there was notation of another burial here as well. I came across references indicating that the grave of Captain Philip Hirsch, VC, of the 1st 4th Yorkshire Regiment was buried here as well. Now, his name is on the Arras Memorial to the Missing. So while there were photographs of a cross in this cemetery, for whatever reason, a burial here was discounted and he was considered missing. So his name was added to a memorial to the missing, the Arras Memorial. Hirsch was from Leeds. He'd attended Leeds University and went straight into the army from that university when the war broke out. And he'd served with the 1st 4th Yorkshire Regiment from the time of the Battle of the Somme. He was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross for the fighting beyond Wancourt, the ground beyond Henning Hill, on the 23rd of April 1917, when it attacked the German positions around a wood in that area. He was killed. It appeared that his body was brought back here for burial, but what often happened is that a body could not be retrieved, and crosses like this, the one mentioned and photographed in this cemetery, 
were often placed as memorials. So when the task of the Imperial War Graves Commission after the war began to try and unpick all of this, they often found that there were crosses in cemeteries which were not actually graves. They were commemorating men who had been killed on a battlefield, but there had been no body to retrieve or the body could not be retrieved. And that appears to have been the case here, which is while although this cross survived, his body was not beneath it. And that's how his name came to be inscribed on the Arras Memorial to the Missing. And I discovered quite a lot more about him thanks to Matthew Richardson, who was working in the Leeds archive, the little archive at the University of Leeds, where this great collection of First World War material was and still is. And they've got quite a lot of the Hirsch papers in that collection. It's an excellent archive that's probably a bit underused when it comes to the study of the Great War. And although Hirsch is not buried here, and you'll find his name on the Arras Memorial, a cross similar to the one that's in the photograph that was taken here is now on the edge of Kestrel Copse, which was the bit of ground, the wood, that he was fighting over in April of 1917. So there's a proper memorial to him there now as well. From here we follow the tracks uphill now, and we can see and sense the rising ground as we climb the edge of this hill towards Hennin Hill, which is the other side of where the motorway and the railway line runs towards where we can see the wind farm, the tops of the wind farms in the distance. And before we get there, we come to Kajil British Cemetery on the left-hand side. This is another small battlefield cemetery that was started, in this case, by the men of the 21st Division, principally those men of the 64th Brigade, on a snowy day in April 1917, when the survivors from the battalions of that 64th Brigade came here to bury their comrades who had fallen in the battles of the Hindenburg Line. And sappers from one of the divisional Royal Engineer units from the 126th Field Company Royal Engineers erected that wooden cross on the hill overlooking these graves where the battle had taken place. So this cemetery with 318 burials, of which 35 are unidentified, with a lot of the headstones very close together, probably indicating that these men were either buried in a section of pre-dug trench or a selection of shell holes that were joined up to create a burial site for the fallen from this battle. It includes two Victoria Cross recipients who died in the fighting in this area. One of these was the 20-year-old Private Horace Waller of the 10th Battalion, King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry, so one of those units in the 64th Brigade. He was a young lad from Dewsbury who'd been conscripted in May 1916 and arrived on the Somme front towards the end of that year, and this was his first battle. And in the fighting for this section of the Hindenburg Line, he was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross. Being killed on the 10th of April 1917, the citation for his VC reads, for most conspicuous bravery when a bombing section forming a block in the enemy line. A very violent counter-attack was made by the enemy on this post, and although five of the garrison were killed, Private Waller continued for more than an hour to throw bombs and finally repulsed the attack. In the evening, the enemy again counter-attacked the post and all the garrison became casualties except Private Waller, who, although wounded later, continued to throw bombs for another half hour until he was killed. 
Throughout these attacks, he showed the utmost valour, and it was due to his determination that the attacks on this important post were repulsed. So a minor battle in the capture of the Hindenburg Line that entered a German position, held it, formed a bomb block, and the Germans had thrown everything at them to try and retake that ground. But Horace Waller, the young lads the, in the bombing section of that battalion, had done his best to hold that ground, but had paid the price with his own sacrifice, being buried here amongst the comrades that he'd fought with in that Battle at Arras in April 1917. The other VC recipient buried here is Captain Arthur Henderson of the 2nd Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders. There's a slightly different unit. It was actually in the 33rd Division, fighting on the other side of Hennin Hill towards fontaine le croisie And in one of the battles on the Hindenburg line there on the 23rd, 24th of April 1917, he was killed in the fighting leading to the award of a posthumous Victoria Cross. After having been wounded in the arm as he'd led his men forward, they got into the German lines and he displayed great courage and determination in trying to hold that position alongside his men, losing his life in the process. So for a small cemetery of just a few hundred graves to have two recipients of the Victoria Cross, that is quite unusual. And Henderson's VC is in the Ashcroft collection and I'm pretty sure is on display in the Imperial War Museum. Now one of the great things about this podcast is the way that many of you contact me saying how much you enjoy it, but also often contact with additional information about certain areas that we've discussed and stories connected to those. And I was really pleased to get one such story from Steve Curtin, who listens to the podcast. He wrote to me and told me the story about his great-grandfather on his mother's side, who was a coal miner, Charles Wainwright. He was born in 1883 in Outwood, West Yorkshire. That's not far up the roads from where I've been living. There's a very good militaria and medals fair there every month at Outwood. It's close to an area of collieries and part of the old lifting gear is on display there. So it ties in with him being a coal miner in that area. Charles Wainwright married Emily Jane Jack in September 1906 and they lived in the village of Street House nearby the colliery of Charleston, which is where he was working. And they had three children, Ethel, Ivy and Mildred. Mildred was Steve's grandmother. Sadly, the eldest, Ethel, died just a few weeks after she was born, which was not that uncommon, sadly, in the Edwardian period before the Great War. It wasn't such a golden age for everybody. We see that depicted in series like Downton Abbey, but for ordinary people, it was often a tough life. Charles Wainwright was serving with the 9th Battalion of the King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry, so one of those units in the 64th Brigade, and he was killed in the attack and the fighting near Henning Hill on the 9th of April 1917. Steve has been to see Charles Wainwright's grave at Courgeil Cemetery, where we are now, and when he went there with his mother, he asked, why is there never any mention of Charles' wife, Emily? She was never spoken about. And in uncovering that story and asking those questions, he found out quite a shocking family story that Emily, on receiving the news of her husband's death, was so overcome with grief that she walked out of the house one evening and took her own life by drowning in the lake behind the colliery. Her daughters, Mildred and Ivy, were at home and they were aged only five and nine. And Steve was so moved by this story that he felt that having visited Charles's grave, 
he wanted to see Emily's grave as well. So he tracked down where she was buried and it was in a communal pauper's grave in the cemetery at Street House. And although it was not marked, Steve has subsequently marked this with a wooden cross and a plaque. Now he was very kind and generous in sharing this story with me, allowing me to tell, retell this story that he's uncovered through the podcast. Now we often talk about how women were as much victims of the Great War as the men that they lost. And this is a really terrible, dramatic and very sad example of that. And Steve shared with me as well some newspaper reports of what happened. And I'll read those for you now. A sad case of suicide was investigated by the coroner at Street House near Wakefield following the discovery of the body of Emily Jane Wainwright, aged 33, of Belton Street, Street House. Elizabeth Jack of Bishopgate, Wakefield, widow of David Jack, innkeeper, said the woman was her daughter and widow of Charles Wainwright, who was killed in action April last. There were two children. Since hearing of her husband's death, she had been very depressed and used to say that she could see her husband in her dreams. Frederick Patrick of Bullen Terrace, Charleston Common, said that about 4.20 Monday afternoon he was walking round Charleston Dam when he found a shawl on the bank with a note pinned to it. He looked into the dam and saw the woman lying just below the surface of the water. He raised an alarm and George Bailey of Albert Terrace, Charleston Common, stripped and swam to the woman and pulled her to the side. The services of Dr Clark were secured, an artificial respiration tried but in vain. The note was in an envelope on which were the words in Wainwright's handwriting opened and read and contained the following. Dear mother and sister, forgive me for what I am going to do, but it is either this or the asylum, and I cannot bear the thought that I shall spend years in there. Look after my children for me and let them enjoy themselves and help to forget their mother and their father. My heart is broken at leaving them, but I can't do anything to them, as I love them so well. My head is so bad that I cannot write any more, so kiss the children for me, and be good to them. A verdict was returned that Wainwright drowned herself, whilst temporarily insane from grief at her husband being killed in the war. I can't thank Steve enough for sharing that research and that story, not just with me, but now through the podcast with us all. And I think that when we visit these cemeteries and we see the lines of graves and the white headstones, we focus on the men and their sacrifice and their bravery and their deeds on the battlefield. As I often say in this podcast, it's important too to think of the families back home and the effect that the war had on them. The repercussions of this conflict didn't end when the fighting ended with the armistice, it went on for the survivors, it went on for the families, it went on for the widows who couldn't forget. Grief overwhelmed so many of them, and I wish that that story of Emily was an isolated one, but I suspect that it's not. And as we walk through this small cemetery, and this is what I found when I came here in the 90s, the memorial that I'd seen in Beverly Minster, the wooden cross that had once stood on the hill here, had been replaced in 1931 with a permanent memorial. Thought lost by John Nichols, thought lost by André Cuello in Arras, but here it was. It had been moved into the rear of this cemetery where it stands today, 
a stone cross to the men of the 64th Brigade, those battalions of the King's Own Yorkshire Line Infantry, of the East Yorkshire Regiment and the Durham Line Infantry who had fought over this ground, Charles Wainwright amongst them. And as we walk away from the cemetery, continue up the track, it goes under the railway line, under the motorway, up on to the vast fields beyond. Somewhere up here is where the original cross stood, perhaps where the replacement stood too, until it was moved when all this construction took place. But it survives, and that's a good thing. A neglected, I won't use the word forgotten, perhaps overused when it comes to the context of the Great War, but certainly a neglected memorial on this, neglected battlefields of Arras. And when we come out beyond these traces of the new world, out onto that landscape of the older one, peppered now with these wind farms, but also marked by the scars of war, the shells that come up during the iron harvest, but also the concrete structures of the Hindenburg line. There's quite a few of them on this part of the battlefield. We can wander here and walk through those crisscross pathways, through those echoes of the stories of the men who fought and died here in 1917. And this, I think, is what we get from these visits when we walk this ground, when we uncover the stories of the men buried in these often isolated cemeteries, perhaps few visitors, but each one a time capsule that transports us back to those men and, as we found, those women who were so much part of the wider story of the Great War. This is what we get, this is what we find when we come to these places. This is what draws us back each time, what compels us. The landscape, perhaps a vessel of sadness when we think about young women like Emily so distraught at the loss of just one soldier here in that momentous battle of 1917 that she took her own life. But I think as well as sadness we can find inspiration too to live a good life, to honour the sacrifices of that generation, to never forget and walk not just the familiar paths, but the ground where we find new stories, new inspiration along the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.